This is Morgan Michael, welcoming you to Kindsight 101, the podcast where you'll hear from world-renowned educational leaders about the mobilizing power of kindness, together by challenging our assumptions and venturing beyond the status quo in education, we can make a big impact, one small act at a time. It's not our job to limit the list of possibilities. It's our job to say, here's everything. Who are you? Deep down, most educational organizations care for their employees and students, and they want to keep up with new human rights policies and best practice. But when it comes to gender diversity in the workplace and schools, many of us aren't always sure how to proceed. In this episode, I talk with Kingsley Strudwick, founder of Ambit Gender Diversity Consulting, which was initiated as a natural continuation of the work he's been doing for the past 10 years in the anti-violence and community engagement sectors. We discuss the complicated relationship of gender and sexual identity and the tangible ways to create inclusive learning spaces. You can connect with him on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by searching AGDC or Ambit Gender Diversity Consulting. I thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. And if this is new or uncomfortable for you, I thank you for listening and I thank you for doing so with an open mind. Kingsley, it's wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Morgan. It's a pleasure. So through Ambit Gender Diversity Consulting, you help broaden what it really means to be inclusive, accessible, and affirming, and to make sure that organizations are identifying and meeting the needs of all of the clients that they serve. Would you elaborate on what Ambit does and introduce yourself for the audience? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I started Ambit about three years ago um, after noticing that uh, I had been doing some work around um, making services more accessible and inclusive for trans, non-binary, and two-spirit people. Um, And through that work, I was noticing that mostly, I would say, nonprofits or social services sectors were self-selecting into that training. Um, So, you know, realizing that they were serving trans and non-binary clients or, you know, had two-spirit employees um, and wanted to be doing better at serving those folks. Um, But I was just realizing that, of course, there were so, so, so many other sectors where trans and non-binary and two-spirit people go and engage and live um, that would definitely be keen for this learning but wouldn't necessarily know where to seek it out. Um, And so, yeah, I decided to launch Ambit. And um, after some outreach, it's really flowered pretty incredibly, actually. So I think the timing is right for this kind of education and training to be happening. um, Because as I mentioned, people are keen and humble, um, but don't necessarily know where to start. So yes, it's almost as though I think many organizations need a roadmap or, or some kind of guidance to know how to do it properly and respectfully. Absolutely. And I think right now also um, people are kind of in that place of being scared to make mistakes. And I think that's true across lots of different learning. Um, But I think especially around uh, trans identities, there there seems seems to be new language to describe our um, kind of expansive ideas of gender every day, right? And there's there's a new term or there's a, a new way of thinking about things, which is beautiful and wonderful. And I think for folks who aren't living that, it can be kind of challenging to jump onto a running treadmill. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a really 
important part of why I really wanted you to come on the show because I think having an open, safe conversation and sort of delving into that instead of just looking at the surface aspect and sort of living in our our ignorance, I suppose, Mm. is really important. I think it's just kind of getting a sense and getting more comfortable with some of these terms for those who, yeah, like you said, just have not been exposed to some of the different um, ideology and, and maybe some of the terms. So you often begin your workshop by describing some of the background and the terminology around the gender diversity, non-binary identity, and the transness. So I was mm. really fascinated when I attended your workshop to hear how connected to colonialism our current Western perspective on gender roles are. So could you talk a little bit about maybe that context and then some of the, maybe just sort of like a, a, an overview of some of the distinctions. Does that work? Sure, yeah, I can definitely um, talk about the colonialism piece and uh, yeah, we can go from there. So um, basically, uh, Indigenous communities to this day have lots of ways of understanding gender um, that doesn't only acknowledge man and woman. So there can be gender roles, a third, a fourth, a fifth gender role and beyond. Um, And to my understanding, there's a there is a scholar named um, Harlan Pruden, who's a Cree two-spirit person, um, who has done a lot of research around language and, and around um, gender and, and how sexuality operated and operates um, in, in Indigenous communities, both historically and currently. Um, and he has uh, found that over you know 200 communities had terms to describe this wonderful vari- variation and um, diversity of genders in indigenous communities and um, through colonization and through you know Western European influences on these territories um, and through you know genocidal practices and through residential schools, the binary system and the patriarchal system of gender was very, as I mentioned, um, yeah, violently reinforced onto indigenous communities. Um, and in some cases that the language, that beautiful and diverse language to describe um, diverse genders uh, was erased through colonization. Right now there's, um, and you know, throughout the last many decades, there's been a resurgence of indigenous language, which is beautiful. Um, and in replace of that, some folks use the the term two-spirit to describe um, queerness or transness uh, within indigenous communities. Um, but to know that that colonial impact doesn't only imp- uh, influence indigenous communities, of course, colonization influences anyone on these territories. Um, so we're all, um, yeah, kind of embedded in this binary notion of gender, um, that because we're so in it, it can sometimes seem like a capital T truth. Um, but of course, what we can always trace the roots of these social influences and uh, colonization is definitely one when it comes to genders. Right. And sort of that rigidity and putting people into a binary, either you're this or you're that, but there's sort of no fluidity. And you would argue that there is a more fluid approach to gender diversity to gender identity to sexual identity would you say that's correct yeah so i think in lots of kind of trans 101 workshops um there is this presentation of of concepts where we think about sexual identity and gender um and our bodies or sex as three really separate and distinct 
elements of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they can be, but I think they're also very deeply interwoven with one another. Um, and so again, taking a kind of an indigenized approach would say, sure, we can acknowledge that these are different elements of a person, um, but that in fact, we can't separate them quite so easily as we might like to do with a model like the genderbred person, where we have three really clear and distinct um, model models or spectra for each of those things. Um, I like to think of it more like a recipe where we, you know, have these ingredients that make us up, but once we throw it into the bowl and give it a mix, um, it's not actually so easy to pull those ingredients back out again. Um, Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Can you even elaborate a little further? So when you talk about gender bread versus Mm -hmm. this recipe, what, like, can you tease that out a little bit just so people really understand? Because I found that to be such a, a clear illustration of the the different approaches and the different perspective? Yeah, so that initial model that I talked about uh, of the genderbred person, some folks might have seen this image online. Um, and basically, it's yeah, a little gingerbread person that says that your sex is, uh, that model would say, you know, what's between your legs. Um, or, but we know that sex is actually much broader than that. So it's anything that makes up your physical body. So that can be our chromosomes, our hormones, internal gonads, external genitalia, and then all of that magic that happens at puberty um, to change all of our, our external characteristics. Um, and the genderbred person would say that gender is in your head. Um, but I don't love that framing um, because it makes it seem like something that someone just thought up or that you're making it up or that it's some kind of fantasy. Um, and that, in fact, gender impacts our realities every step we take in this world um, based on how we interact with people, how they interact with us and how we understand ourselves. And so um, to have that model that says your sex is in one place and your gender is in a different place and they're yeah they're different and separate and they don't talk to one another again is is sort of a colonialized way of thinking about bodies and experiences um and so that that recipe idea instead is to say yep you know people have experiences of gender whether they're um cisgender so whether they identify with the sex that they were assigned at birth or whether they're trans or non-binary or agender so not experiencing a gender um we all have experiences of gender in the world and we all have experiences of our body but really let's take those two ingredients and throw it into a vitamix (laughs) right (laughs) and hit emulsify and and that's actually what we come out with is this really entangled, um, wonderful, complex experience of our, our bodies and how they move through the world. I love that. And it's sort of this deviation from the quote unquote way that we should be living or should mm-hmm. be experiencing life mm-hmm. as per the cultural expectation or sort of that, that ancient cultural expectation, right? Mm-hmm. Based on that colonialist framework, I suppose, and kind of stepping into, well, what is the reality and making that normal and accepting that. And I think, I think within that is this really important piece about supporting youth through that, because we know Mm. that youth are experiencing exactly that, that, that reality, right? They're sort of exploring Mm. their, you know, how they express themselves. And within that can be, I mean, a lot of confusion. And if the culture isn't supportive of their actual reality around gender diversity and identity and sexual identity, 
that that can be really difficult, right? And I, I remember mm. you saying that you provide a lot of support for youth in schools and around the community through your organization mm. who are exploring their gender and their, their sexual identity. And it struck mm. me to hear that you often find that these youth wind up being, I mean, they're not only sort of perhaps feeling like outliers or having to sort of have this inner strength, but they also become the support systems for their parents or the adults in their lives who are also kind of navigating this. And that was a real surprise for me, but it makes a lot Mm -hmm. of sense. And so a, a large part of doing this interview also is to say, it's our responsibility as educators to make sure that all of the students that we serve feel accepted and loved and Mm. as though they are enough just as they are because they have enough going on Mm -hmm. in terms of the support that they have to provide. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, so often when youth come out, especially to their families, um, their parents are caregivers their child may be the first trans person that they're meeting on on a or that they know that they're meeting right the first trans person that they're developing a close relationship with and that can feel really isolating for parents and caregivers um they don't know who they can talk to about it they don't know who will have negative reactions who will have positive reactions um and so even like I often think about the the ripple effect or the kind of secondary and tertiary impacts um, of supporting trans students in classrooms because yes, you're supporting that child, but if you can make it clear to families, um, you know, you'll be supporting students who have trans parents, uh, you'll be supporting students who have trans friends, you'll be supporting students who have trans neighbors. And so this is about supporting trans children and youth in your classrooms, but it's also about creating a community where people know that you are a safe person to come to. Um, And I often think about, you know, sometimes as I'm engaging with uh, adults in classrooms, so teachers or, or, um, you know, EAs, there can be this angle to say, well, there are no trans people in my classroom, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? So Mm -hmm. why should I change what I'm doing? Because this is, you know, quote unquote, such a small fraction of the of the population, right? Um, And to me, I'm thinking, how will it change practice to assume that there are trans people in your classroom? Mm -hmm. They might not know that yet. You might not know that yet. It might take them 10 or 15 or 20 years to come out. Um, But I think right now we're operating in a situation where we put all of the onus on trans youth to be the trailblazers and to come out regardless of whether they know it's safe or not, and then we'll adapt to the needs that that specific individual has. But my question is, how can we take more systemic responsibility than that and create those changes so that it's even possible for people to come out or say, you know, I have a sibling or I have a parent who's trans. Um, the, The idea that there's no trans people or no one who is close to a trans person in your classroom probably just means that you haven't yet created the, min- the environment for someone to tell you. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. That's really interesting. And then, and I think even, even queer, you know, queer individuals too, I think if we take a step back too, there's still sort of in certain circles, a discomfort with, with that. And it's sort of this mm-hmm. perception of it being a choice and a lifestyle approach or something. Mm-hmm. And so I think even within the context, the broader context of the LGBTQ 
to ask community that, mm. yeah, I think we really need to be creating this, this safe place. I've heard colleagues talk about the fact that, that, you know, student teachers or, or EAs in, in the school continue to have a very sort of restrictive approach to the way that mm. they view that kind of expression. And, mm. and it's kind of shocking but mm. but it still exists, and I'm sure that you feel the undercurrent of that in some of your interactions, I, I, I would imagine, in the community. But um, I guess I, my question is, so given that, what are some of the practices that schools and workplaces can adopt in order to become more inclusive and to allow those individuals, to allow everybody, but to allow those individuals to feel safe and valued? All of the practices that I'm about to talk about are definitely of benefit to trans and non-binary folks who more obviously experience their gender outside of that binary. Mm. And I would suggest that these practices are actually of benefit to everyone. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, of course, if you're a cisgender girl in school or a cisgender boy in school, um, you know, there are lots of ways that having these expansive approaches to gender benefit a boy who wants to explore femininity or a girl who wants to explore masculinity or a kid who wants to say, what do these concepts even mean? (laughs) Um, And so it's, yeah, it's about blowing up, blowing this all up for the benefit of everyone. Um, But I think in in the workshop that uh, you were in, we talked about this framework of, um, you know, having having some approaches in your classroom that address accessibility. Um, and to me, that's, you know, can trans folks even come through the door? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, you know, have a look at your forms. And are you saying, what's your mother's name and what's your father's name? We can just shift that up. And again, that's a benefit to lots of folks mm-hmm. <laughs> who might be in situations that look different than that. Um, it can be, you know, do we ask about pronouns on student intake forms? Um, if not, can we, if we feel like we, um, if we feel like that's not possible, what kinds of conversations can we have to make it possible? Um, do you collect data about gender in your class lists? Um, I know in BC that happened right up until very recently, and it might even still be happening in other districts in BC, um, but not in Victoria. So, you know, we don't have an M and an F next to a child's name anymore because we don't actually really need that information, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And mm-hmm. so it's getting clear sometimes that data needs to be collected for certain reasons, but very, very, very often we're collecting data about sex or about gender when we in fact don't need it Mm. um, or it never gets used. Um, So those are kind of the measures around accessibility. And I I would say, you know, looking at um, does your district even have a policy uh, that speaks specifically to the challenges and barriers that trans students might face? Um, so looking at dress codes, right? Um, there, there are just so many ways that this uh, trickles into that systemic element mm-hmm. um, and not just about our personal interactions with folks. So that to me is the accessibility side. Um, and then on the affirming side, that's more about, okay, people can come through the door. Well, how do we treat them once they're through the door? And so on that side, that's you know ha- feeling like you are equipped to navigate conversations about gender in your classroom um, beyond just that surface level. So maybe that's you know bringing um, yeah bringing curriculum and bringing books um, as a conversation starter. Right? It's not about um, there. There's some anti-queer or anti-trans rhetoric right now that says you're teaching my child to be trans right Right. by 
by reading a book in class or by, um, you know, having these facilitated dialogues. Uh, and really, this is about, um, yes, bringing vis visibility to a community that has frankly been erased for many, many decades. Um, and if your child's not trans, or a student in your class is not trans, this is about, again, as I mentioned off the top, building communities where you know how to engage with trans folks. Mm -hmm. So whether a child is trans or not, they're going to be in community with trans people. Um, and so this is about, yeah, as you said, building these respectful and um, uh, empathetic relationships um, where that aren't rooted in our assumptions about people. The accessibility piece uh, tends to be what people think of first. So, you know, can we have a gender inclusive washroom or shift our forms, right? These are very tangible things that we can hold in our hands and say, it used to be this way and now it's that way. And so that tends to be where people's energy goes um, because we like tangible success, sure. <laughs> right? Um, but on that affirming side, you know, it takes longer. It means you have to be invested both in your long-term relationships with trans and non-binary students and two-spirit students um, in the long term, even though you might only teach them for one year. Um, and, and we have to be invested in those relationships where someone, a student in your class or a colleague of yours might be saying, um, you know, people are gender confused these days, or, um, you know, what what's going on with kids today? This is just a fad, right? Mm -hmm. You're going to be in a position where it is part of your responsibility to intervene in those moments, because not intervening is making a choice too, right? Mm -hmm. Not intervening is erring on the side of saying that this is okay. Um, and in my engagements where I'm in the room with youth, you know, in my experience, at least, youth often say, I can handle it when a peer says something, but when a teacher in the room hears that and does nothing, that is, you know, has a triple effect. Mm -hmm. um, or when a teacher in the room is the one to say <laughs> the negatively impactful things, right? Like it just carries so much more weight because of the power that adults in the room have. Um, so it is on the positive flip side of that, so impactful when adults in the room can model the way and to set that example. You know, youth are, are sponging up every little thing that we do. <laughs> um, and are, frankly, when it comes to gender and, and orientation, um, we can be taking their lead, right? Yeah. Uh, so often I hear from adults who I'm engaging with, my 13-year-old or my 8-year-old <laughs> has taught me so much about gender that I wouldn't otherwise know, right? So, um, yeah, both being able to model the way and take leadership and, and get out of their way, right? Perfect. I I loved how you actually incorporated role play into the workshop that you facilitated. Mm -hmm. And you provided some really powerful hypothetical situations related to gender diversity in schools mm -hmm. that really allowed for the opportunity to dive in kind of in a first person way. Can you share some of those just and some of the different, you know, the different ways that one can respond to some of these really tricky situations? Uh, there, yeah, there are a couple I can think of in terms of the role play situations. Um, to me, that's even, you know, get with a partner and practice using neutral pronouns. So they and them or another neutral pronoun of your choosing um, and just practice doing that for a couple of minutes uh, or pretend that you're in a parent teacher interview and you're across from a parent who has a trans child 
but their child has come out to you and not to them, right? So how do you navigate through that parent-teacher interview um, without misgendering the child, without using a name, if they're using a different name at school than they are at home? Um, usually people can navigate, navigate through it. Sure, it's a challenge, but we're that's why we're practicing, right? Um, the most foundational thing in that is when possible, whenever possible, taking the lead from the person who is most impacted. So before you even get into that parent-teacher interview, have a conversation with the kid and say, hey, you know, your report card's going home. I'm wondering what name you want to have on that report card. Um, there are certain elements that we can change. There are certain elements where your old name might show up. How, how does that feel for you? Um, what pronouns do you want me to use in this interview? Do you want me to just try and avoid pronouns altogether, right? So it's taking leadership from that person. Mm. As an ally, it's not your job to anticipate the needs of folks you're trying to be an ally alongside, right? It's to ask those questions in an open-ended way and be willing to adapt your strategy to each person, which I think is what caring and compassionate teachers do across all different kinds of um, student needs, right? right. Uh, so I also like to use these scenarios to highlight to people, you're already doing a lot of this stuff. I know engaging with trans and non-binary students might feel new, but in fact, applying all of the strategies that you already have for supporting students with lots of different needs apply in this case as well. So it's it's navigating all of those moving parts, right? And of course, also knowing your scope of practice to say, you know, there are certain elements that I could totally take on as a, as a teacher and, and um, you know, that could be navigating that conversation with a student or knowing to refer to a counselor or knowing to refer to your admin and um, making sure that those people feel equipped equipped, right? So right. it's not your responsibility to, to field every challenging moment that you have, but it is your responsibility to feel prepared to, you know, not react with shock when someone comes out to you uh, and to have some exploratory questions like, how can I best support you? Um, and okay, let's see uh, what we need to do to make those things happen. Are you feeling safe? Are you feeling safe at school? Are you feeling safe at home? Right? Similar kinds of questions that we would explore in lots of different moments when someone dis discloses something new to us. And I mean, that's just one example of a scenario, right? Yeah. And I think that's really powerful too. I mean, I think your message is saying when someone is making themselves vulnerable in this way to receive that and to support them in a way that's caring and really empathetic like looking mm -hmm. at it from their standpoint not coming in with your assumptions and your frame of reference about what is or should be but sort of being able to receive where they're at and then support them and lift them up where they need to be right you know youth are are navigating their safety like experts right and mm -hmm. so coming folding back into that um you know confidentiality piece do you have a responsibility to to tell parents if uh, a youth comes out to you, um, you know, what's going on for their child in terms of gender orientation. Um, but to know that, you know, if a youth says to you, you know, no, I haven't come out to my parents yet and please don't tell them. Yeah, I'd have some questions about, you know, are you feeling safe at home? Um, but again, it's not that we just put on our ally hat and, and <laughs> assume that we need to know what to do to say, well, it would actually be better if you tell your parents. Um, that might be your long-term goal for that child. The stats will, will tell us that, um, you know, if a youth comes out, there's 
about a 50-50 chance that they'll be able to stay at home that night. Um, so youth that are feeling really supported or happen to be very supported by their parents, uh, there's a study that shows they're 100% housed, and youth that are feeling even medium or unsupported are 45% housed. So basically, if that youth doesn't want to come out to their parents, maybe they're saying, yeah, I feel safe enough to come out to you at school, um, and I have a particular uh, desire in mind with respect to this trip or with respect to, you know, having bathroom access while I'm at school, um, and I'm not ready to come out at home, and there are lots of reasons why. And, so, we, have to, and we have to fundamentally respect that because that – that stat is staggering. That's, mm -hmm. and you do look at youth homelessness, and I, I've done some research around that, and the stats are are pretty high for trans and queer folk for sure. Probably yeah. for that reason, right? Yeah, they're definitely way overrepresented in in um, yeah homeless communities, or um, and that includes even right like uh, are people staying on a friend's couch, yeah. right? The kind hidden the hidden lesser. homeless. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Amazing. I mean, that that is in itself, I think, just such an important point that that their safety at home, you just never know what what it looks like at home. And it's not necessarily about neglect and abuse. It's about it's about really opinions and, and frame of reference and mm. cultural standpoints and understanding that that all fits into the puzzle of safety as well. So mm -hmm. that's, that's a big aha, I think, for me as well. Before we move on to the rapid fire, I'd love mm -hmm. for you to share maybe, are there any specific stories around a youth that you were able to connect with where that sort of, op I'm sure there are so many, but is there one mm. that sort of stands out for in the way that you or a teacher or somebody was able to be that difference for them? So often I'm doing trainings with adults who serve youth. So that's predominantly what I'm doing. And so I am offering information. I'm offering skills and tools and I'm offering to be a resource outside of the classroom. Um, and it's one of those things where I'm planting seeds and I'm not necessarily directly seeing the long-term impacts, mm. partly because I'm not, you know, consistently in those classrooms and because sometimes it actually takes five years, right, mm -hmm. to um, witness that kind of cultural revolution. Um, and it can be a subtle cultural revolution, but, you know, I, I often think of it as a, a sailboat that's just slightly changing course by degree, by degree, by degree. And all of a sudden, after over over time, we're looking at a new horizon. Um, but I do remember being at, uh, at the museum, actually, um, and they were having kind of a a speakers in the round sort of event. And mm -hmm. um, I remember offering my story and it was less about um, the work that I'm doing and more about just my, my own personal journey through the world. Um, and connecting with a youth several months after that uh, who happened to be at that original event and them saying, you know, I went there with my, with my caregiver. This is a kid who's been in and out of foster care. Um, and uh, yeah, that, that kid was like, you know, I went there with my caregiver and um, that was the first time that she had seen someone, like an example of what her child, the, the path that her child might have in life, right? Mm. Um, so for myself as a young person, I never had examples of what my life might turn into mm. um, outside of really negative representations of trans people. Mm. Um, so I think for that youth, it was so powerful and maybe a, 
again, one of those single degree turning points for their family to say, there's a future for my kid. Mm. Um, And I think so often we hear about those dire stats for trans youth, right? That's kind of the, the, the common, um, if there is, yeah, yeah, common narrative, or if there is some shared information about trans folks in that, um, yeah, that dominant narrative sort of way, it's all about, you know, depression stats or anxiety stats or Mm -hmm. suicide attempt stats. And it's all, I'm, I'm, I don't blame parents in the least for feeling nervous about the experience that their trans child will have or feeling nervous about the safety of their children. Um, and let's start to bring to light, um, some stories about how trans folks can flourish and thrive in the world, right? Mm -hmm. Some examples to say, yeah, there are lots of ways that life can turn out. And some of them are pretty great. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and I think that also speaks to embedding narratives of trans people within schools. Um, because in replace of that, there's nothing. Right. It's it's not even as when I was growing up, it's not even that there were, um, you know, necessarily explicitly negative things being taught about trans folks. That stuff happens more subtly, um, but that it was just a total vacuum. There was nothing. And the the result of that must be like there's something wrong or different or I need to erase myself somehow. Like it must I would imagine that would be the result. Right. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And so speaking truth to these, um, yeah, wonderful, diverse, flourishing, nebulous galaxy style uh, ways of being, um, I think are so powerful for youth to say, you know what, I don't see myself reflected in that, but I do see myself reflected over here. And oh, but not that piece. And I'm going to invent a new thing, right? It just, it creates these expansive environments. And that I think that's really what we're trying to do in classrooms is to show what all of the wonderful possibilities are and say, what works for you? And that's, that's the um, challenge of being a youth, right? Is to say, now I need to wade through this and, and figure out who I am. But uh, it's not our job to limit the list of possibilities. It's our job to say, here's everything. Who are you? Wow. That mic drop. <laughs> yeah, that's precisely, I think, what our job is, is to help these kids figure out who they are and to do that in a very authentic way with a lot of integrity and to respect their path and support them in it. So beautiful. Before we move on to the rapid fire, do you have anything that you'd like to touch on or add? Um, yeah, to the adults or teachers who might be, um, yeah, just feeling nervous about about moving into this territory or knowing that you're in a district that will have some backlash to this, um, I, I honor that nervousness, <laughs> too. Um, and I'm not, my ask to people isn't to change everything overnight, right? My ask to people is to take one little tangible step for a student in your class for whom that might be a life-changing thing, right? Um, Something that might feel like a small change to you. Uh, Trans and queer and non-binary students or those with um, queer and trans members of their family are looking for those little indicators to say, is this teacher safe? Can I trust this person? Um, And is my family reflected here? And so just those those little elements, those little micro changes in your day-to-day make a world of difference to people who are looking for them. 
What does kindness mean to you? It means opening your heart, being inquisitive, and being willing to explore what respect means to someone else, even if it's not the same as what it means to you. Mm. What one superpower or skill does an educator need to lead with in order to be effective? Humility um, and modeling learning with your students. Right? So it might be that a student has a question about gender or about orientation that you have no idea the answer to. <laughs> and that's great, right? The best thing you can do in that moment is say, I, I don't know. Let's look it up together, mm -hmm. right? Modeling that learning with your students, I think, um, builds a level of trust uh, instead of being that all-knowing figure. That's not what people are looking for, in my experience. Yeah, <laughs> that's I think, not what I'm looking for. <laughs> and I think that's really where we're moving in education is more of a, uh, yeah, a, a guide on the side kind of thing. Yes. Mm -hmm. What quote or saying would you print on one of those quote cups that could be sold in bookstores around the world? So the first one that, that jumps to mind for me is uh, Marianne Williamson. Um, yeah, our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that uh, to me has been a kind of a guiding quote in my own life and my own journey. Um, and has enabled me to step into some really vulnerable spaces um, and my own path of queerness and transness and just being a person in the world. Um, but I think uh, I think young people and and adults alike are are navigating through a world that can be pretty daunting at times. And um, to be willing to push into that um, that's where the transformation happens. That's where the learning happens, and that's where our deepest growth happens. Um, so yeah, that's what I would put on a cup. Great. I think it's a good yeah. one. I love that quote. I do. Um, before, before I let you go, where can people find you? So the best way is probably online. Um, if you go to agdc.ca, um, that's the Ambit Gender Diversity consulting website. And uh, of course, I'm on Instagram and Facebook as well under the same name. So um, yeah, I'm so, so happy to connect with folks, whether it's a, a personal question about things that are happening in your family, um, or whether it's uh, about, you know, engaging with some workplace training, um, the entire spectrum is welcome. So Absolutely. And I would highly recommend it. It was really eye-opening and it was really comfortable and it was it was a lot of fun. You were so great. I loved your presentation. So I'd highly recommend it to any district or, or educator or actually workplace as well, you know, corporate workplaces, I think, anywhere mm -hmm. really, um, because I think it's such a powerful message and it's, it's very inclusive actually as well. So mm -hmm. thank you so much, Kingsley. It's been such a pleasure. I was absolutely honored that you accepted my invitation to be on the show and it it did not disappoint. I really, really enjoyed it. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Morgan. I uh, look forward to connecting with you more. I want to thank you for the wonderful reviews that you've left for this podcast on iTunes. Your reviews make a big difference in helping other educators find this show. If you think that I'm doing good work here and you'd like others to get inspired and join our 21-day kindness challenge and movement, I'd love it if you would take a minute, head over to iTunes, and leave a review. Thank you so much. 
This has been another episode of Kind Sight 101, the podcast. For links to resources mentioned in this episode, visit smallactbigimpact.com and click on our podcast and choose this episode number. Now, I'd love to give my audience a heads up about my new book, which will provide ideas, actionable strategies, and inquiry-based approaches to creating kinder classroom through serving the community. Subscribe to my blog for more information. Now, I would love to hear from you. What's the biggest insight that you gain from this conversation? Head over to our website, smallactbigimpact.com, leave a comment on our podcast page, or tag and connect with us on social media with the hashtag smallactbigimpact to share your inspiring story of kindness. Can't wait to hear from you.